Hey, I'm Brett. And I'm Aditi, and this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And sometimes about processing potatoes. French fries, yum. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we're talking about the pandemic and its impact on food tech, something you guys know a lot about, right? There has certainly been an impact on the food space from the pandemic. Lots of things have changed, some for the better, some for the worse, depending on what kind of company you are. You guys have been in the office for a little bit, though, right? We have been coming into the office regularly for about three July? months, four months. Yeah, we've been back. We do have vaccination requirements at our office, so we, you know, so we do have some requirements around it. But definitely, the the food space from top to bottom, too. It's from enterprises down to startups. Everybody's been impacted, and I've seen some companies go from literally about to die to taking off, and some that were rocking and rolling going to zero. Some of the founders that we were going to talk to later. Yeah, I mean, they were. And what's amazing about them is just they lost everything and had to kind of build back from scratch. So our question today is, how does a startup survive the pandemic? Jeff Grass and Iman Palavani can write the playbook on that. They're the founders of Hungry, a tech-driven catering platform that matches chefs with businesses. And their entire business was focused on one key customer in mind, the office worker, of course, the pandemic obliterated most of their business and they had to start from the beginning. Oh, and by the way, they were also funded by A-listers like Jay-Z, Kevin Hart, and our own Brett Broll. And they had a cute nickname for you. What, what was my Wait, what? I, I don't I don't remember that. We will listen to it. That's the tease for people to listen to the interview. It was a fun nickname and a tidbit about whether it was harder to pitch to you or Jay-Z's folks. It's a, you know, it's a, I'm pretty intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a look at some hot topics trending in food and innovation. Berlin-based Atlantic Food Labs is relaunching as Food Labs, and it has a dedicated 100 million euro food tech fund to invest in food, health, and sustainability startups. Now, the company says it'll focus on scalable digital business models toward a more efficient and sustainable food industry from earth to earth, from agriculture, production, distribution, human health, and zero waste. Ooh, Stephanie, you're an expert in branding. That description feels like everything but the kitchen sink kind of invitation. It also seems to describe every food tech company out there. You know, I, I think if it were a regular company, that would absolutely be true. But, you know, as a food tech fund, you want to kind of spread out what you can invest in, I think. And so what's exciting about that to me is they're covering all sorts of different angles within the food industry that people don't necessarily think about. I mean, zero waste is core to food right now. Sustainability yeah, we're hearing so much about that, right? So much. And it's interesting because we kind of look at it as almost every food tech startup out there is actually involved in sustainability, no matter what they're working on. They are going to have an impact on some part of improving our climate, improving sustainability. And Brett, is does that come from meeting the consumer or also because it just makes more business sense or a little bit of both? I think from a fund perspective, having that broad thesis is, I mean, we have a broad thesis at our fund in the food space. I mean, full stack food, right? That's part of where the name for this podcast was derived from. And the more narrow the focus you have as a fund, the harder it is to find great founders within that focus. And so 
it kind of just leaves the door open. And I think that what it also speaks to is how much opportunity there is across the entire food vertical from on-farm to supply chain to manufacturing, all the way to future of food retail, how consumers get their food. So I think it's awesome to see all of these new funds specifically focused on that, but you're also seeing a lot of the traditional tier one funds, coastal funds that are out there starting to add food to their investment thesis. So you know they might have invested in fintech and all this other stuff, and now they're starting to actively talk about, we want to invest in food tech. So that's exciting for early stage founders that are innovating in this space right now. Cool. Next, plant-based meat brand Tofurky is teaming up with Triton Algae Innovations to commercialize algae-based meat innovations. You're going to have to help me figure that out. But it features Triton's red algae, which is set to launch commercially early next year. Triton uses UV light to stimulate green algae to turn red and produce heme. That's, of course, an active ingredient in meat. Brett, is algae the new frontier in fake meat? I had no idea. I mean, talk about like the crazy things, right? Like would anybody have thought that you were trying to build, make plant-based meats out of soybeans, right? Or out of anything else that we've tried to go through. So I think the, the theme here is that the protein industry is such a huge industry. Literally hundreds of billions of dollars get spent on proteins every year. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity because of the sustainability aspects, because of the expenses, the labor. Okay, well, finally, is canned wine the next big thing? The LA Times reporting that sales of canned wine rose from 0.7% of off-premise wine sales in March of 2020 to 1.2% of wine dollars this last summer. The trend is apparently driven by young drinkers from 21 to 34 years old. Brett and Steph... I don't see this catching on personally. What do you guys think? Oh, hard disagree, Aditi. Really? I think it's catching on. It's because you can have it as more of like a open a single serving. That's true. Okay. Or at a picnic or or at a picnic or something. And I think what has changed over the past couple of years is the tech. Would you call it tech? That makes it actually taste okay being in a can. Canning technology is like with the rise of the microbrewery. There's a ton of new, almost like transportable, like canning machines out there. And so you'll see that if you, your favorite brewery beer, local brewery beer, almost all the cans look identical, probably because they are identical and just have like a different label stuck on it. And so I wonder if that has anything to do with the rise of wine going into cans also, because it's just more available and easier to do at this day and age. I don't know, though. I'm like, I yearn for the days of boxes and, you know, taking the bladder out of the box and being able to, you know, kind of pour it, you know? No. Oh, do not yearn for those days. I'm for canned wines. The reason that Stephanie's laid out earlier, I think her argument was stronger. So she wins this one, Aditi, not you. You know what? I mean, I would give Stephanie the win on this too. Coming up, we'll talk to Jeff Grass and Iman Palavani on how to survive a pandemic when 95% of your business goes away. When you bring food and technology together, an interesting thing happens. Foodies become more tech-savvy, and technologists, well, they start looking at food differently. That's what happened to Jeff Grass and Iman Palavani. They are a pair of entrepreneurs who are working on a business when they stumbled upon a personal pain point. How can they access affordable, fresh, home-cooked food when they're stuck in an office all day? That's how they, along with Iman's brother Shai, came up with the idea for Hungry, a platform that connects chefs with companies for catering. 
The business took off and the founders clinched some high-profile investors, including Jay-Z and Usher. That was in March of 2020. Almost overnight, the world went into lockdown, offices closed, and Hungary's business was effectively eviscerated. Instead of coasting, the founders were clawing their way back. Not exactly the script they had written when they started Hungary, but then again, food tech was a path none of them expected to take, especially Jeff, whose early experiences in the restaurant world left him with a bad taste. My first job ever, I was a cook for Kentucky Fried Chicken for six months, and that was such an awful experience. I, I really kind of wrote off the food industry for quite a while, but Hungry brought me back to it. It's definitely turned me into a passionate foodie, and it's been, you know, 35 years later, you know, kind of brought back and, and really love it now. You had an interesting childhood, though. It was unconventional. Can you explain that? My father worked in intelligence. He worked for the, the CIA for most of his career. And, and so I, I kind of grew up as the son of a government worker. Actually, the, the time that I was working at Kentucky Fried Chicken, I was living in a, a little town in the Australian outback. So we spent a few years overseas in Australia. And could you tell people that your dad worked for the CIA? No, absolutely not. So um, I'm outing him now, but he's been retired for over a decade. And so, but no, he had cover his, his whole career. So it was uh, usually other parts of the government or other agencies that you know he worked for at the time. What you do now, obviously, is very transparent. What brought you into being an entrepreneur? Yeah, it started in the late 1990s. I co-founded a, a company called PayMyBills.com, which was an early player in the electronic bill presentment payment space and so the very you know, beginnings of, of online bill pay. We were incubated at, at Idea Lab out in, in Pasadena, California. So I got to work with Bill Gross and the team and we were the very first idea they'd invited into the lab. Everything else had been internally generated. And so it was really kind of a, a cool experience. Ever since then, I've been a, very much a serial you know, tech entrepreneur. What made you want to be an entrepreneur and do something on your own rather than work for the federal government like your dad did or work at a company? Yeah, well, I, I love the process of, of creation and you know building something new and ideally something that's having a positive impact on the world. I guess at some level, I don't really enjoy being told what to do as well. I like to kind of do what I think is the right thing. And so and with Hungry, it's really, you know, kind of a, a beautiful blend of, you know, creating a really exciting business, but also doing it in a way that's having a very positive impact on the communities around us and, and the people that are, that are involved in it. Iman, you grew up not too far from Jeff when Jeff was living in Metro Washington. Tell us a little bit about your growing up experiences. Sure. So I, uh, born and raised in the Northern Virginia area, my parents were immigrants, uh, came from overseas. My dad started, you know, a few different, you know, businesses successfully. So kind of followed in the same path, went to George Mason here. And then I went up to law school thinking I was going to go be a lawyer. Worst decision I've ever made in my life. All I did was rack up a quarter million dollars of debt. So that's fun. And then, uh, before graduating from law school, right around graduating time, my brother kind of came up with the first idea that turned into my first experience in entrepreneurship and, and business building. And Iman, did you grow up with a passion for food? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so you were over two on that. The other co-founder, not at all either. So <laughs> the best idea ever, right? Three non-foodies getting involved in a food business. I think we just identified a real need that we were experiencing ourselves and took on the challenge of let's figure it out and see if we can do it had confidence because our the other business that we were in was doing great. So you kind of get a little confident, a little arrogant. You think you can do anything, and then you go out there and 
you know, you hit wall after wall, but that, that's kind of how we fell into it. How did you and Jeff meet each other? So my brother, who's two years older than me, was uh, in a business class at JMU, if I'm not mistaken. Jeff was, was teaching an entrepreneurship class and slash seminar. Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong. My brother was very inspired by Jeff. Jeff's a great kind of motivational speaker. We can get you get you amped up pretty quickly. And so he went up after class, said, I basically have to work for you. There's no way I can't. So kudos to him. He was aggressive about it. They just stayed in touch. And then Jeff ended up hiring my brother in another one of Jeff's companies. And then it started from there. Then they started a business together called LiveSafe. And I joined. And that's when I met Jeff, who at that point, my brother had described him. He, it was like this mythical creature that like knew how to do everything. And like so it was a very big meeting when, when I first met Jeff. And then you know, that we've been partners ever since. You know, I had known Shai um, for a number of years. I, as Iman mentioned, I hired him into a previous business that I had, and so we'd worked together for a while. Iman, you know, naturally gravitates towards kind of sales and operations. He was kind of helping spearhead a lot of our early sales efforts at LiveSafe and just really creative, really thoughtful, you know, great work ethic. So it was just, you know, kind of a really good, you know, match. Did Shai pass the class? <laughs> was he your star student? <laughs> I was persistent. We'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Amon was shaking his head no, uh, since this is a verbal medium. I was supposed to go and become a dentist. That's what the parents wanted. And they wanted the other kid, me, to be a lawyer. And neither one of those panned out well. Lawyer and a dentist. Not a bad pair. <laughs> it's so, so similar with the immigrant stories, right? My parents wanted me to be a doctor or engineer, which is so classic. That didn't work out so well. But. Entrepreneurship is a code word for you don't have a job to most immigrant parents. So they're like, no, what the hell is that? You need to go be a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer. When I got married, one of my wife's uncles asked, now that you're getting married, is Brett going to get a real job? Literally <laughs> after that. It's a true story. <laughs> You're welcomed into the family. <laughs> <laughs> Iman, I wanted to ask you, I come from an immigrant family myself, and in many first-generation families like ours, food is such a centerpiece of our lives. Was that the case for you? So cooking food and, and making it and like being a foodie wasn't, but what I was raised with was eating home-cooked meals is just a common thing. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So eating out was not common in my house, and so when I started LiveSafe was my, other than Circuit City, which is now out of business, LiveSafe was really my first real, you know, I'll call it corporate job, startup job, you know, going to an office. So having to feed yourself lunch every day and going out and eating after, you know, you do it for a couple of years and you start to put on some weight and you're like, this isn't really that healthy. It's not that great. doesn't make sense why so many people, millions of people go to work every day and they have to go to the local Panera Bread or local shop versus getting some really awesome, authentic home-cooked meals delivered to them. And that was kind of uh, the origination of the idea. And Jeff, what was your point of view? How did this idea come to you as well? Yeah, it was actually an idea that the China Mon had been working on for a while, uh, kind of behind the scenes, sort of presented it to me after they they'd, you know, fairly well developed the idea. It started as very much a B2C concept, though, as Amon mentioned. So it was around like individuals at work could order you know, 
authentic meals from, from local cooks, local chefs that would be delivered to their office. So we actually started that way, but pivoted the business within about you know less than 60 days after launch because it was very clear B2C is hard, you know, it, it's uh, the economics are challenging, you need, you know, tremendous density and, and just a lot of funding. And I think you see that in the, the B2C, you know, food world today, you know, whether it's a, you know, the, the levels of, of funding that a DoorDash or an Uber Eats or others have had to take on in order to kind of create their business models. So what was nice was we were, you know, really listening to the market carefully and quickly realized, you know, there was a much bigger, I think better and easier opportunity around corporate catering. And so shifted very quickly from a B2C concept to a B2B concept. Even though none of us knew anything about catering, we figured that was the right way to go. <laughs> Did it grow pretty fast, pretty early? The first year and a half was was very much around, you know, learning catering, figuring out, you know, how could we develop this concept of leveraging independent chefs cooking out of ghost kitchens, typically all over a, a given market and serve, you know, clients all over a city in a way that made it very reliable, very scalable, very cost efficient. And so being, you know, tech entrepreneurs, we came at it from very much a technology, you know, focus. And so a lot of the first year and a half was building the technology platform that allowed us to really manage the logistical challenges that come with this model, figure out the go-to-market. We build, you know, many times people call them playbooks, we call them cookbooks here internally, but our, our cookbooks around how we go to market, how you build and manage a chef network, how you run a services organization, and really kind of perfecting that. And is really kind of in 2018 where things really started to kind of accelerate quite quickly. Iman, was it harder to recruit the chefs or was it harder to get the businesses to buy in? Businesses, for sure. Getting chefs on board. We put job applications out literally on Craigslist, Indeed, and you know, just typical job boards. Thousands of applicants, like thousands. This was something that the chef world has wanted for a very long time. A platform that I can just cook and someone else will take care of all the business side, the delivery side, the cleanup side, the stuff that a chef doesn't want to deal with. So just nobody's come up with that concept. No one's ever actually tapped into that side of the marketplace. The business side was used to just ordering from Panera. Your, your local sandwich shop, right? Like every office you go to, that's what they have. So not a hard sell at all. Just getting them to understand that, you know, there's all this local talent, local chefs that provide these amazing cuisines. You let them try it sometimes before they buy it and they're hooked. And then you can give them incredible variety because we have over a hundred chefs on the platform. So every day you can try something new, never eat the same food twice, while also funneling the cash rather than going to Panera. Now you're talking about millions of dollars being spread out to all these different chefs who before hungry make $30,000, $40,000 a year. So life-changing opportunity for these chefs who on the hungry platform we had chefs that were doing twenty-five dollars to $50,000 a month. It was a joke internally at Hungry that they were making more than we were, that the <laughs> chefs, they were killing it. It was true, right? So it was definitely a problem that, that was life-changing. How do you make sure the food's great? You know, Because that's obviously really important to the business. And, and that's one of the things about in the food world is like to build a big, scalable food company, the food has to taste great. How do you vet? You guys just go eat everything yourselves? That's definitely part of it. We put together a rigorous onboarding program. It's actually very hard to get on the Hungry platform. That's one piece of the business. They have to have a certain pedigree just to even apply and be considered. Every single chef that wants to join the platform has to provide the company a catering 
where we will try the food, rate and review it, provide them with feedback. And once they go through an onboarding process, we talk about menu items, ingredients, what are they sourcing, what their pricing is, all these different parts and pieces, take photos and everything. Then when we start them on the platform, typically you would start them off slower and smaller and then they would build their way up. So on day one, you're probably not serving Amazon's 500 person you know, get together, but as you are on the platform and the platform gives, you know, companies provide ratings and reviews, you build your credibility and you start to move up and the order size gets bigger and bigger and the chefs can manage that. We also internally created technology that helps us kind of balance loads. So there's a lot of controls and safety measures and precautions that we've taken, not because we were brilliant and we figured it out uh, or we knew it, but we figured it out by making mistakes in the process early on. And as we made mistakes, we kept fixing and kept fixing until we came up with a product that that has caught fire. Are there certain regulatory requirements or, or health requirements? Like, do you have to go check out where they're cooking and things like that? Absolutely. So food safety is obviously, you know, a top, top priority here. You know, everybody that we're, we're partnered with has to cook out of a licensed commercial kitchen. You know, they have to have their, their food handlers, food managers, licenses, experience, you know, chefs that know how to cook food at scale, you know, be reliable. All of the food, how we transport food, you know, everything, even all of our service team is, is food safety trained as well as hospitality trained. So we really work, you know, we go kind of, I think, above and beyond in terms of really ensuring, you know, from a food safety and also a food quality, right? Kind of you know, a step back from food safety is just making sure the foods arrives hot. It's, you know, it's the way it's supposed to be. And so it's just, it's really an extreme focus on ensuring, you know, high quality, you know, food for our clients. So you guys are doing really well and you're attracting more and more investors. And at some point you get some really big names. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got lucky, kind of right place, right time with a few of them. And others caught wind of it through, you know, news stories and, and just talking to their friends. But we were able to pull in. Honestly, it's, uh, it's shocking for, for us as well. Some of the biggest names in the world to back this little operation based out of DC. Then it was a little operation based out of DC. Jay Z and Beyonce got involved in the business. Usher got involved in the business. Kevin Hart got involved in the business. Tom Colicchio, Chef Ming Tsai. So just folks from different industries, actors and, and singers and comedians and chefs, because they saw not just the business opportunity and the upside, but also this is a platform that democratizes being a chef. It's the ultimate equalizer for a chef. I, as a chef, can now compete with multi-million dollar restaurants for that same catering budget of Amazon and Microsoft and Google who are spending you know, $5 million a year on food for their team. So I am now at the table able to compete with some of these restaurants that are taking that business because Hungry's created this platform where it's plug and play for them. And so that's something that a lot of these influencers and celebrities can really, really easily get behind. Good news is, is their community is not that big. So once they're in, they tell their friends and kind of everyone piles in, which is awesome. You have Jay-Z, you have Usher, you have Kevin Hart, but most importantly, you have Brett Broll. We have the Broll and he is <laughs> the uh, <Brol. laughs> definitely the most influential out of everyone, honestly, from a just help perspective. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? I, were you more nervous presenting in front of Jay-Z's folks or the bro? <laughs> the bro. <laughs> the way that me and Brett connected is an actual great story. You know what? I was actually pretty nervous to, to pitch Brett. 
I had met him and I believe I took you to the airport. You did drive me to the airport, yes. I was pitching him because another entrepreneur um, friend of mine had connected me to Brett and was like, you got to get him on board. Like whatever you do, you got to get him on board. He'll be game changing. And I was like, all right, cool. We also needed money. And (laughs) Brett's like, I don't have any time for you. And I was like, no, 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 please let's get in my car. Where are you going? He's like to the airport. Great. Airport's five minutes away. I have five minutes to pitch a concept. So I think I was talking a million miles a minute. We walked around a parking lot a little bit first. So we walked, we, we did a couple laps around the parking lot where we met. And then I was going to call Uber. And you're like, I'll just drive you. I'll drive you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to get a check from him before he got on that plane. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he did. That was definitely more intimidating than the Jay-Z camp. They were in before we walked in the door. They knew everything about the business. They had already made a decision. I think it was meeting was just checking a box. Did you have to pitch them? Had a pitch deck ready, tried to pitch. The pitch was shut down pretty quickly. It was like, no need for the deck. I just have a bunch of questions. He asked five, six quick questions and then kind of tapped the table and said, put us down for a million and it was over. <laughs> so Jay-Z's folks were easier than getting funding from Brett. You had to drive him to the airport. Correct. I had to. <laughs> Usually an investment requirement. I was Brett's Uber driver. Yeah. And you actually, you did meet Jay-Z at some point. What was that like? We did. We were invited to their um, first annual conference for their successful investments. So all the companies that they had invested in that had done extraordinarily well, they invited them. They wanted their investor syndicate to meet them and they have a couple of companies present. Hungry was one of them. Rihanna's company, Savage X Fenty, was another one that presented. And At that conference, we went to LA and we presented and then Jeff and I met Jay-Z, had a conversation with him. He kind of knew who we were, which was awesome. Took a photo with him. He seemed very, very happy about the the trajectory that Hungry was on. In fact, Jay-Z went up and gave closing remarks for the conference, thanking everyone. And he pointed out how entrepreneurs should aspire to do what Hungry has done. You're enjoying huge success, getting all these investors and then... COVID hits. Your whole business is predicated on corporations and businesses. What do you do? Jeff, what did you do? (laughs) (laughs) It was definitely an oh crap moment. We literally saw millions of dollars of sales just, you know, fall off a cliff in about a two, two, three week period. So, you know, and like you said, our entire platform pre-pandemic was business and event catering and, you know, all of which, you know, kind of came to a screeching halt. So it was, you know, super gut check time. We looked around the the landscape and everybody was firing and furloughing as fast as they could. You know, we had many on our board who were like, you got to cut, you got to cut now and you got to cut deep. And we just didn't really like the feel of that. We had worked really hard on on building an amazing team, a fantastic culture and didn't want to, you know, dismantle that. And so we said, you know, give us a chance to innovate our way through this. And the board investors, you know, said, okay, but you don't have much time. And so it was just, you know, a galvanizing moment where we just quickly started launching new businesses that were very intentionally leveraging the platform that we had created. You know, we've got a very flexible business model. It's this network of amazing, talented chefs. It's, you know, tremendous technology and delivery logistics capabilities. And so with that, we started to roll out, you know, a, a series of new businesses, you know, some of which we've, we've since sunset and others that have just absolutely you know, grown exponentially. And so, you know, it was really kind of gut check time. And it was amazing to see how well the the hungry team responded and how, you know, well, we've been able to navigate the pandemic. And how did you pivot then? 
Yeah. So again, we, we tried a few different things, but the two that have been just fantastically successful, one is you know, started off leveraging a lot of our chefs and sommeliers and mixologists to create these virtual experiences. And and at the time, everyone was creating virtual experiences. But what we, we did to really differentiate was, A, we had, you know, really top talent. So you've got, you know, all of these amazing chefs that are food TV network stars and, you know, chefs of different celebrities and things. But also we created what we call experience kits. So it was essentially everything you'd need to participate in the experience and we'd mail it ahead of time. So it made for a very interactive, engaging, hands-on, live, fun experience as opposed to just watching somebody cook, which is kind of dull. And that's a business we call it our virtual experience business that has just grown like gangbusters and, and has really you know, been a fantastic success. The second is a, is a food delivery logistics business. So it's, again, taking a lot of the tech and the operational capabilities that we built pre-pandemic. Initially, we plugged in with a lot of pandemic relief efforts. We started delivering meals to low-income seniors across the five boroughs of New York. What started with like a couple hundred meals a day grew to a million and a half meals a month last year. And so that scaled up very quickly. And we've since you know, evolved that business away from pandemic and more around solving last mile food delivery logistics challenges for prepared meal companies, meal kit companies, food boxes for health plan members, kind of a range of different use cases, grocery kinds of things. And that's another business that has really you know, flourished and, and we expect will continue to grow nicely you know, going forward. No wild ideas like, oh, oh shit, like all these enterprises are closed all of a sudden. What are we going to do? Well, let's become dog groomers. Oh, we talked about COVID cleaners, right? We were going to do, we talked about, like we, we definitely like had a, you know, everything was on the table for a while. But one of the things that I think we do really well is we execute very quickly. So we're not a group that will, you know, sit in a conference room and debate and debate and debate. It's like, okay, like what are the best ideas? Let's get to an answer and then let's go. And then, you know, knowing that we probably won't get it totally right the first time, you know, like our first virtual experience, we were selling them for $500 a pop, you know, and, and it's like, you know, we're not going to grow a big business on $500 experiences. And so you learn, you evolve, you make it better and better. I think we're really good at listening to our clients and being open to failure and do postmortems and figure out what went wrong and how do we, how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? And so I think that the culture we'd instilled pre-pandemic, you know, really paid off and, and was you know, paying dividends when it hit. Jeff, you founded a lot of companies. I mean, here you are, you've overcome this huge challenge in COVID. You guys are doing really well. You have tons of investors, good on money. What next? What is next? Yeah, what's nice is this is it's just it's a huge, huge industry we compete in. We increasingly are applicable to more and more segments of the business food and event space. So I think there's just a giant, giant opportunity around this business. Our goal is to, to go public in the next two to three years. We think at, at that point, we will have built a, a size and a scale that makes that, you know, very viable. You know, next stop is, you know, a billion dollar you know, company and we'll kind of, you know, keep going from there. But that's definitely kind of the near term goals over the next two, three years. Iman, you hear billion dollar company talk of possibly going public. Does that terrify you or does that fill you up with joy or a little bit of both? Definitely doesn't terrify me. I think we have pre-COVID, we were very much on kind of a rocket, felt very much like we were very close to going from six, seven cities to 27 cities in, in less than two years. So our party got stopped. So this is about kind of getting the music going back again. But this time we're not kind of, you know, we're not single threaded. There's now four different lines of businesses. So the mission is let's get it done. Let's let's keep going on the path that we were on. And 
you know, kind of do whatever it takes to get there. Lightning round, guys. One word answers, a couple questions. Just go gut. No right or wrong answers here. Well, there is wrong answers, but <laughs> I trust that you'll probably won't get it right or wrong. All right, Jeff, first one's for you. Best fried chicken. <laughs> I don't eat fried chicken is the problem. Oh, you worked at KFC, Jeff. Come on. You're already ruining my lightning round. All right. I'm on. Best fried chicken. KFC. <laughs> All right. There we go. All right. Jeff, are you better professor or better CEO? Better CEO. All right, good. I like that answer. All right. For either one of you, 75% of the workforce will be back in offices by the end of Q1 2022. True or false? False. False. <laughs> Both false. Hungary will still be rocking and rolling even if 75% of the workforce isn't back in offices by the end of Q1 2022. True. Hell yes, true. <laughs> you mentioned at the very beginning that neither one of you were really foodies. Are you foodies now? Yes. yes. Nice. That's all I got. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. My name is Tamara Lee, and I'm the CEO of EIO Diagnostics. Our core business is infra-image analysis to improve livestock health. That's cool. What problem are you solving? Well, mastitis is the number one animal health issue in the dairy industry. It's a swelling of the mammary glands while the cow is producing milk. This affects all mammals, even humans. But cows are super athletes of lactation, and they can't speak for themselves. So farmers spend a lot of time and money looking for which cows need help, and that's where EIO Diagnostics comes in. How big of a problem is that? It is a huge issue. In the U.S. dairy industry alone, it costs $2 billion a year. And worldwide, this is a 20 to $38 billion issue. Oh, that's crazy. Mastitis is causing $20 billion plus in issues. How are you solving it? Well, we're using infrared imaging and machine learning to look for early indications of inflammation in the udder. But our secret sauce is really creating a system that integrates seamlessly into the workflow of the barn. So if we create more work for farmers, it's not going to do it. We really need to get in there and be able to identify cows quickly and efficiently. Yeah, that makes sense. And how are you going to take over the world? Like mastitis today, what's the world domination plan? Right. Well, we're starting big by commercializing for large-scale rotary dairies. So think of about a cow carousel, and they move a lot of cows through there. That's a lot of data for us. But then we're thinking big about small agriculture as well, taking that data and leveraging it so that we can take the same fundamental technology and apply it to build a handheld device that can be deployed to smallholder farmers anywhere in the world, and then integrating with other mid-sized dairy configurations so that really we can take them all. Today, I'm here with Chayton, the CEO and founder of Tools Villa. Chayton, what problem are you solving? So basically, we're solving the problem around agribusinesses in India. So farming in India is very primitive. And there are 120 smallholder farmers in India with an average land holding of only 2.5 acres. And out of them, mostly rely on manual work for their farm operations. 
So from our experience, we have found that manual operations are almost five times slower and 40% costlier compared to a modern mechanized process or at least a semi-mechanized process. That's cool. How many farmers are there in India? 120 to 150 million smallholder farmers. 120 to 150 million smallhold farmers. That is insane. It must be really hard to reach them. How are you solving this problem? So, Brett, we have built an online equipment marketplace in India called Tools Villa. So, till date, we have more than 50,000 customers spread all across the country. We are working with more than 450 suppliers and offering more than 10,000 products on our platform. And to solve the, you know, inadequate knowledge that the farmers have, we use our call center and our YouTube channel uh, to provide free consultation and training to these farmers. And these channels also drive our reputation for excellent customer service. Do people like the YouTube channel? Do you get any views? We have close to 100,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. And some of the videos have millions in viewership. 100,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel. I think I've got like 2,000 subscribers. What's the big vision? How are you going to take over the world? So we want to become the go-to platform in India where both buying and selling, we become the sole platform to enable both buying and selling of this input solutions through the Tools Villa platform. So going back to the question, Brett, how does a startup survive a pandemic? What is it about these guys that made them push through? They were able to pivot really quickly and then execute against that pivot. So, you know, some of the best founders in the world are just really great at understanding opportunity. And, you know, they had some cool technology that enabled them to move into a new space and and actually do some good with their technology while keeping the company alive. I also think these guys are incredible communicators and they're incredible to their team. They're just great leaders, which has made a difference throughout this past year in particular. Yeah. Steph, from a branding perspective, was there something that these guys did that helped them kind of overcome those hurdles? I would say what they did is they, at the end of the day, maybe doing something a little different, but they kept to their core brands of delivering amazing food experiences. It just turned out that it was in a slightly different way than they had been doing it before. And so I think, you know, as Brett said too, they did some really good stuff with their technology as well. And so they just set brand values and they lived up to them. All right, see you guys next week. See y'all next week.